And so I think coaching, especially senior leaders on how to invite and include diverse viewpoints and work styles that are not like theirs is critically important. And those are, those are coachable, learnable skills, hardcore skills. Welcome to episode number 51 of the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andrew Tempty, and today, well, we've always got very special guests, but today we've got Andrea Minnelli joining us. Andrea is senior advisor at Titan Partners and serves on the boards of a number of companies. Thank you so much for being here, Andrea. Andy, it's great to be here, and it's so exciting to be in a room with you again. It's been a while. Yeah, a, 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 vir- a virtual room, but in you know, in full disclosure, uh, what was it for about six months? You were my supervisor. I think so. Six months in a day. <laughs> six months <laughs> in a day. Yeah, that was my experience at Kaplan. Mm-hmm. I had uh, uh, you know twenty plus years and almost that many uh, supervisors uh, during during that time. But I greatly I, I remember our time together with great fondness. So. This is our fifth episode in the mini-series on organizational change and change management. Andrea is here to help us think through change journeys and change management practices in one of the most important areas of business. This is mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I'm really excited for this episode. Uh, I've been waiting for this one on change management because this is one of the areas where I've personally seen the most value destroyed in in business is through mergers and acquisitions. And we're we're not gonna think more about the negative side, we're gonna try to think more about the positive. But before we get started, as always, Andrea, please tell our listeners your story. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And again, again, thanks thanks for having me here. This will be really fun. My story, I started out thinking I was going to be a lawyer. And that was after studying in college. I was an international relations major, very interested in uh, politics too. And I decided to defer some acceptances to law school, thinking I better give it a try first. So I was a paralegal for a year, and fortunate for me, I did that because it proved to me that I did not want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be the business person who was making all the decisions. I was working for a corporate law firm. I happened to be in Paris, which was fantastic, but that did not um, overcome what I saw the lawyers doing, which I realized was not really what I wanted to be doing. So I went back to the US, I went to business school, and I embarked on a career in investment banking, and then energy, which was very exciting. Um, Had a great decade-long career in both those industries, but ultimately pivoted at a very important time in my life. Um, I was in my 30s, and I pivoted to education. So I've been in education for about 20 plus years, as an operator and also an advisor and also a board member on several companies. And I really just love it. And for me, it was about bringing private capital and private sector ideas to a public sector good. And that was education. And we all knew, I think that we all know that education is so critically important to our livelihood, our economy, our civics. And uh, that's what I wanted to devote the rest of my life to. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I love that part of your story where you were a paralegal, uh, which 
you know, in the relative scheme, grand scheme of things was kind of a low risk way for you to test out whether the legal sector was was right for you. And you learned very quickly that it wasn't. So that that's a pretty efficient path. And one I'd like our listeners to, you know, to think about instead of, uh, you know, going and kind of brute forcing all the way through and like, that singular mindset, I'm going to be an X. And and then you brute force your way through it. And all of a sudden you get on the other side, you get your first job and you go, wait a minute, that that's that's not uh, that that's not for me. Um, you know, if as you think back, uh, especially to those times, uh, was there one key accelerant to your career? Was there that one mentor or that one guide or that one experience that really put rocket boosters yeah. behind you? You know, that's a great question, Andy, and people ask me that um, often, and they do ask the mentor question. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think early in my career, until I became more cognizant of seeking one out, that I actually had a good one. And I think I struggled for the first decade. And I'll be honest also that I worked for a woman in an investment bank. And that was, a, I think, a disappointment to me and her that that, that, wasn't, um, that didn't form that kind of a relationship. The key accelerant for me was failure. <laughs> or perceived failure. Yep. So what happened was after that decade of working in energy and banking, uh, I worked for a company named Enron and Enron went bankrupt. I think that's a well-known story. It's not for today's podcast, um, but I was an actor in that. I did leave about a year before the company went bankrupt. I wasn't happy. Um, and uh, that was a big reckoning for me and really made me think very hard about two things. Number one, the lessons learned from the bankruptcy and the value that was destroyed across the board from secretaries that had invested their 401ks to Anderson, the firm that went down, to um, just the lives destroyed, including deaths and suicide. So that is a big story and was just monumental in my life. And it forced me to examine two things. One, what did I want to do with myself every day? What was the purpose of working? And who did I want to do it with and toward what end? And that's when I pivoted to education. And fortunately, you and I ended up in the same place. We were at Kaplan, you know, an amazing group of people, great professionals. There were mentors and guides there. But it was really, I think, failure in that um, I had achieved a title. I had made some money in that decade of career. But in the end, it just evaporated. So it's really hard to look back on a whole decade of your life and say, what do I have, you know, what do I have to show for it all those hours I spent? So that was that was the pivotal moment in my career that turned me toward an industry I love, great people, um, and just something I feel has purpose. Yeah, I thank you for that uh, unprovoked uh, plug. Uh, I literally just before this uh, this taping, uh, I was working on the personal purpose uh, A3, uh, a free product that I'll, I'll have on my website uh, pre pretty soon. And in my new book, it's it all starts with purpose. Uh, and, you know, for you to learn that at an early age like that uh, and and to and to pivot and, you know, to determine what that purpose was, you know, kudos to you. There are so many people that go through their lives and don't align their personal and professional purposes. So, you know, big thumbs up. Um, you know, the main topic today is change. Uh, but I think we need to do a little bit more of a setup. 
Can you help our listeners understand what a company like Titan Partners does and a, a brief primer on the role of private equity? Sure. And I know for many, and even for me, for many years, uh, you know, private equity, venture capital, you know, these terms uh, have this aura and mystique around them. And I think it's important that we uh, dispel a little bit of that for people. So I'll try to I'll try to do that. So Titan Partners is a strategy consulting and investment banking advisory firm, and we work for private equity. We work with impact investors. We work with venture capitalists. Those groups of organizations all provide capital to help companies grow. And what they want to do is take companies that have great ideas and great management and help them grow bigger. Now, Titan happens to help people do that exclusively in the education sector. So we work with really tiny companies, we work with very large companies, and we work with the people that provide the funds. And that's what private equity does. Private equity is usually a source of capital that's derived from pension funds, high net worth individuals, um, other pools of capital that want to put their money into growing companies, but they don't want to do it through the stock market. The stock market, public equities is one way to do it, but to have a more direct impact on a company, you work or you put your money with a private equity firm, we call those sponsors, and you ask those people, the guys and the girls that run that firm, go out and find great companies, invest in great companies, and return capital to me. The companies, on the other hand, are, usually are very happy because private equity provides capital for growth that otherwise might be hard to get. And generally, the people running the firms provide a lot of help, and they get a board of advisors to help them grow and scale their firm. So quite simply, private equity is a fuel of growth in this country. I think we, I think your, your listeners may know that small and medium-sized businesses actually fuel the most job creation in this country. We hear about Walmart, we hear about Target, we hear about Amazon, but honestly, it's small and medium-sized business and private equity provides the capital to grow those companies. So a uh, little bit off script here, but how do you dispel the, the myth, and I do believe it's a myth, that money through private equity is is somehow free and is you know is and there are these endless pools of 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 money there are a lot of people that run businesses that compete with other businesses that are private equity funded and you know it's like oh my goodness they they just have so much capital uh behind them uh what does that look like behind the scenes yeah uh, behind the scenes it's like down. anything else we see the success and we don't see the failures right yeah. so so for every one that is succeeding that we hear about, two others have failed, right? And, you know, maybe they've been able to raise capital, 10 million, 20 million, 30, 300 million, but they probably haven't always deployed it well or provided a return such that their investors will re-up or give them more money. That's number one. Number two is we do go through cycles in the economy. And at this moment, Prior to COVID, there was a lot of wealth creation after the 2008 recession, a lot of private wealth creation. Um, a lot of it is aging baby boomers. So it is fair to say that this decade, there has been a fair amount of capital looking for alternative forms of investment and private equity is one form. 
to put your money into if you're a high net worth individual, if you're a pension fund, if you're a college endowment. Right, right. So at the top of the podcast, we were talking about purpose, you know, your personal purpose. When Titan leadership sits down, what is their purpose? How does Titan add value to the national and global economy? Yeah, that's a great question. And we 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 try to talk about that a lot. We feel like, um, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, we're involved in the education sector. We are helping to fuel great companies and services that promote, that upskill and train people, that help K-12, that help higher ed. But I think that's a little uh, a little lame, honestly, and we have to dig for a deeper <laughs> a deeper purpose. And we at Titan um, pride ourselves on working with companies that are mission driven, but also know they need a margin to be sustainable. Right? Mm-hmm. There is no free lunch. Yep. Philanthropy has a role everywhere, but a lot of our job is helping companies provide great outcomes. So we're very outcome driven. We like to work with companies that are outcome driven and outcomes mean providing people with a skill, a degree, uh, some training for an affordable price that helps them advance their life and their career. I'll be honest, it doesn't always happen. We do have a wide array of clients. Um, Not all are successful. There are some assignments, um, you know, that, that, we try to help people with their purpose and mission, but um, that's how we feel like that we're advancing the economy. Um, we're doing a little bit of good, but also making sure it's sustainable. Um, and the advice and counsel we provide often helps people with their strategy, but it also helps them raise capital. Yeah. Th- thanks also for that. Uh, you know, that sustainability thread. Uh, I, I talk a lot about, you know, cash flow matters. Uh, a lot of people are growing up, have grown up in this world where the stock market always goes up. <laughs> they've they've never they've never seen a downturn, and capital is uh, again somehow free, uh, but it's not. And you know, at some point, uh, the piper needs to be paid, <laughs> and uh, cash flow uh, need needs to be generated. So you know, thank you for reinforcing uh, that. Uh, that that lesson for us. So let's get into change and change management. Uh, can you recall an example or two from your career when a major change event occurred and the potential impact of change on the humans involved really wasn't contemplated in, in advance? And, you know, what were the ramifications yeah. of that? Yeah, boy. This is uh, <laughs> just, I think, as you and I both know from the the battle scars of of acquisitions, um, you know, the human side is the hardest side to get right. And we can push numbers and, you know, do the analyses, strategic fit, pro forma, internal rate of return, and it all looks great on paper. And then, whoops, there's humans involved, right? Right. Tapping human potential is what makes businesses great. And it's very difficult in mergers and acquisitions to do that. So two specific experiences. One, when I was uh, managing an acquisition, um, we acquired a company in another country. The country was India. And, you know, we had done our due diligence. We felt there had been some trips to go and discuss with the employees there, you know, how things were going to work. And then it all had to happen. 
And this was before Zoom and remote learning, remote interaction was just de rigueur. And, you know, uh, it was the early days of technology development. And so it was a tech company that we had acquired. I'm telling you, Andy, that was really difficult. And we kind of failed. And you may know the incident I'm talking about. And it was at two levels. One, I think it's really hard to anticipate, especially when you cross borders, the cultural differences. Sometimes that's even hard in the United States. You and I both were part of transactions where, you know, we're living up in the North, we acquire companies in the South, and just things are different. People are different. Companies are different. Values are different. And that really matters when you're putting two companies together. So take a cross-border exercise, even though we all spoke the Queen's English or some version of it, just completely different page about how to talk about um, goals and mission and compensation and shared accountability. So that was really hard on both sides. And I think there was a lot of frustration. I think for my U.S. employees, something I knew too, and it was affected our Indian employees as well, was just the cost of international travel and the toll it takes when you're trying to get your job done. And just the larger picture, making sure people have the time to devote to an acquisition. This was unusual because it was so far away. We, we always underestimate that. Right. So that's that's example number one. I would call that the cultural fit issue. The second was I was a board member and we um, built a company and it, it turned into a great company. And then we knew we had to exit and um, found a great buyer. And, you know, as a board member, I was actually not part of the selling process, um, but I was wasn't sure what what you know, totally what the intent of this buyer was. And you always have to, you, you can't anticipate what a buyer is going to do sometimes, right? I mean, you can legislate some of it in the agreements, but in this case, I don't think any of us saw this. The buyer did shut down a whole office of about 200 people and just like relocate, you know, move the operation elsewhere. And that, that's what they were entitled to do. And I don't think um, the CEO who had spent his his career, you know, good part of his career building, even though received the monetary value, very well rewarded for what he had created, was ready for the emotional, you know, and, and even me as a board member, the emotional blow of, wow, that that's, we call it the creative destruction of capitalism, right? I mean, that is what that buyer ultimately saw value in, in consolidating operations and those things happen. And but the human side of it, just because we knew the employees and, and that's, that's a different situation than, um, you know, Hey, I got another job for you, or I just want you to do something different. Right. So like that was, a, and it, you know, it was a, it was a blow even to that, that area where that, that got set, shut down. So we have to be ready for those things, right. Mentally. And, um, as leaders, it's always difficult because when you sell, you, you often don't know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. No, you just uh, brought back uh, some very uh, distinct memories that, that I have and emotions from making decisions like that to shut down an office, uh, to move a, a company. You know, again, on paper, it, it, it looks like the right thing to do. And then you get in the midst of it and the and you haven't contemplated uh, the emotional and the human toll that that it's going to take. 
week. So, uh, you know, let, let's switch over to the positive here. Uh, you know, we've both been party to numerous acquisition cycles where change management wasn't top of mind, but what are some of the best practices that you've seen throughout your career when two cultures are, are brought together through acquisition? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, first and foremost, leadership just really matters, you know, and it, it boy, if there ever is a time when a leader has to just really bring the full, their full selves to the table and, um, and really be prepared. And I, I think being prepared starts with being a good listener. And then hopefully you can do this homework before the acquisition, being a good listener, understanding what you're putting together, what culture is coming into maybe hopefully mesh with and not clash. And then, and then creating a sense of shared vision and values and trust. And if that is not established really quickly among a core group from both sides, it's going to be a long battle, you know, up that hill. <laughs> so I would call that the, the homework and the preparation a leader has to do. And again, it starts with listening and it starts with some elements of compromise and some element of shrewd choices about who your team is because your team is going to carry the water and you have to trust your team. So making decisions pretty quickly, but pretty thoughtfully about who that core team is and getting them to buy into that shared sense of vision and mission and hopefully them understanding your values and that there's a meeting of the minds there. I would say that's number one as a best practice. From there, it's communicate, communicate, communicate. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't have to say that. But the other one I would then say is with that team, I think it's really important at some level to delegate and empower, yep. but help them. You know, don't don't leave them, don't give them a rope so they can hang themselves. Don't leave them out on a limb, but you have to trust them. And, and there will be mistakes. You know, I think in my career too much, I was often a perfectionist. And it, during acquisitions, you have to learn how to play 80-20 and you have to trust the people working with you and let them go get it done. And they may not get it right all the time, but you have to be there for them. You have to have their backs because trust during that process is so important. I guess finally, the last thing I would say is um, be be swift about the hard decisions. I think you and I both know, like, you know, everyone says, oh, we got 90 days and then we're going to decide. Pretty much, I never found that after 30 days, you ever knew more than you knew, you know, you knew in the first 30. So make those hard decisions and just be clear about deadlines and don't go back on your word. Right. You know, if you, if you say that you're going to do something for the employees of the other company, you better do it. Because if you go back on your word, you're just you're going to immediately break the trust. Yep. Talk it, then you got to walk it. You know, on this podcast, we, we talk a lot about skills and reskilling and you in, in, in those best practices that you just mentioned, uh, there were some specific skills that were, you know, embedded there. And my next two questions, uh, center around skill and skill development. Uh, the first one is, you, you know, your, your leadership team and you're contemplating some big change, some big acquisition, uh, but it's down the road a little bit, uh, what skills do you uh, work to weave into your employee base before the, the change happens to set everybody up for success? Yeah, I thought this was a great question because so many organizations are, probably aren't thinking that way. I mean, I, if, if you are a private equity 
owned, it's more customary that they um, may provide the capital to fuel you or uh, through growth, through acquisition. Uh, but this happens with strategic companies as well. You and I worked for a strategic company that was very yep. acquisitive as well as being focused on organic growth. So we were, I think we were fortunate um, in that regard. So what I would say is it's very important to acclimate your top people, really everyone, to having a growth mindset. I know this is a buzzword these days, but I really believe it's important both at school and in our work lives to have a growth mindset. What is a growth mindset? Being open-minded, being a constant learner, being adaptable to change, recognizing that nothing stays the same. We don't know it all. We're all learners. And I think taking the air out of you know, a sense of hierarchy and, and as a leader engaging with people and showing your own vulnerabilities and what you don't know and saying, let's all engage in this together. We all need to be learners because the world is going to change and we need to be ready for change. Then if people, if their job title changes, if you ask them to do something out of the, out of their wheelhouse or that they're, they're just more prepared for that. And I think, I think this is a hard thing to teach and coach. I hope in what you're doing and your uh, your this this next chapter of your career, that coaching leadership teams to develop that growth mindset is super critical. It's just really critical. Yeah, I I agree that the growth mindset uh, is you know this overused buzzword, uh, but when you start to unpack it, like you just did, very very eloquently, all of these uh, you know supportive skills fall out of of that of that explanation. Things like vulnerability, which is. Uh, you know, absolutely essential to to helping to establish trust within and across teams. So, you know, th thank you so much for that. Let, let's move the question to back to the C-suite. So what what skills do leaders of that company need to invest in to ensure that they're ready uh, for that major change event? You know, one of the things that I find um, that they, they don't, Certainly when I went to business school, they never did a good job with this. And I'm not sure throughout my career if there was ever enough of this. But giving and receiving feedback, it sounds so simple. And honestly, I, I do remember you were always, you were great at that. You were a great exemplar of how to do it without, um, without passing judgment, without making somebody feel bad, you know, with, with, Making sure that people understand this is a this is a very normal thing in a in a positive culture and a, a pro social positive culture environment. We need to be able to do that, right? Yep. I just don't think leaders can do it very well, and they have to, especially when you're if you go through an acquisition. Even more so, you're going to be acclimating to people uh, who are new that maybe the trust isn't there, right? Yep. So it's that's that is a skill that you just we can practice, we can learn that. The second thing is is I think understanding and appreciating diverse voices and work styles that are not your own. Mm -hmm. I think too often we hire in our own likeness because it's easy, yep. because the people that speak the way we speak, and I'll give you a small example. I had a guy who worked for me. I use sports analogies. I would, I would call us a team and I would say, okay, come on team. And you know, I'm the manager and you guys are the, you know, you're the infield or whatever. He finally came up to me and said, you know, this team stuff, I'm not a team player. I don't like it. I like, I'm a marathon runner. 
You know, could you just stop using those analogies? And oh, by the way, I'm an introvert. And he handed me a book called Quiet. And I read some of that book and I was like, wow, the whole way I had been approaching this guy, he was different than me, right? And was not great. (laughs) And I learned a lot. And so I think coaching, especially senior leaders on how to invite and include diverse viewpoints and work styles that are not like theirs is critically important. Yeah. And those are, those are coachable, learnable skills, hardcore skills. Yep. Yep. No, the, the, and, and I'll just add that the feedback that you started with has to be uh, in real time or as close to real time as possible. I'm, I'm kind of on a one person. uh, I know there are multiple people that want to do this, but, you know, kill the annual review as it's currently uh, designed where you save up all of your feedback for this one really important yep. meeting that's going to happen once a year and neither party is is prepared uh, is prepared for that so yeah th- thank thank you thank you so much for uh, for for that um, now my last question for you today as we get close to our time is you've got a new college graduate or an individual that's interested in the field of M&A as a career changer, what, what advice do you give to them? Yeah, that was so much, uh, but I'll try, to, I'll try to keep it relatively simple here. But I think where I would start, and again, not to, not to focus too much on the negative, but to really educate or, or for this person to really be mindful that for the most part, acquisitions fail more than they succeed, right? And while it sounds, it is super exciting when it works and it is a very, very intellectually and rewarding field, it's not as easy as it all sounds, right? And just be mindful that what we just said, we're talking about, we're talking about livelihoods, we're talking about companies, we're talking about all the positives that can happen when there's a great merger or an acquisition, but they're can also a lot of stuff can go wrong so more fail than succeed so being a student of that and understanding is really important i think the second thing i would say is you know we can the hardcore skills are very important i didn't even talk about those with the managers because i think those are not the most important and i would say that to somebody going in is yes you have to understand the numbers and there are a lot of numbers and there's a lot of strategy but in the end people will make or break a deal And it's the people on the management teams, both sides, whether it's a merger of equal or one company acquiring another. And then it's all the way down to the last employee, whether it's the janitor in the building at the end of the night or uh, the, the assistant greeting everyone as they come through the door or the virtual assistant, everybody matters. And you got to focus on the people issues. Um, And I guess, I guess lastly, um, one thing I always remember because you and I lived this and not a lot of people do that work in M&A is buy it as if you were going to run it. And, you know, I think people buy a lot of times and they're like, well, I didn't have to run that. And they never live the headaches that they create when they're going through the deal process. Um, so even, even young people getting into the field have that sense of ownership that I'm going to buy this. I'm going to have to run it. What are the problems and the challenges and the opportunities that me as a CEO would face. And I think yeah. that's a really great way to go into the, the, the field of, of mergers and acquisitions. Wow. 
Andrea, you've been so helpful, so insightful today. I, I know our listeners are going to get a lot from this particular session. So uh, it's been uh, wonderful to see you again uh, after, I know we keep in touch periodically, but uh, you know it's been a while since we worked together and just brought back lots of memories of why I really liked working for you and with you uh, back at Kaplan. Uh, so, so thank you for your contributions today. Uh, my name is Andrew Tempty. This is the Balancing Act Podcast. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, any other podcast services. Please like, subscribe, and, and rate. You can find us at andrewtempty.com, and we will see you next time.